It's always an exciting week. I do hope you'll be praying for us diligently if you're not able to come and help us directly. Um, Jesse is uh, determined to have at least 75 kids. That would be half again as much as we have had in the past years. Uh, And that's why all the advertising and stuff has been around. And we're just going to trust the Lord that he'll provide the number of kids that need to be here. Um, We're excited about it. Turn over to Colossians, the book of Colossians, New Testament. Remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Now, we had started into our journey. Let's make sure this is going to work. Yep. We started our journey into this letter last week, and we briefly examined the life of Paul, his co-worker Timothy, and then got a little background on Colossae itself and the church that had been planted there. And we found that in Paul and Timothy, we have great examples of what the Lord can do with those who are simply willing to be and do whatever the Lord wants, to go where he wants them to go. Good examples for us to follow. The Lord can do that with anyone who is willing to do the same. Now, Colossae itself had once been a great city, but it had declined in the years prior to the church being established there, and now is more of just a small town. And yet we find Paul has, as concerned for this small church in this small town as he was in the larger churches in the big cities like Ephesus or Corinth. We find that when our concerns are directed by God, it's not determined by the size or prestige of its importance. God determines the importance. He's concerned about the small as well as the large. Now, the Colossian church itself was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers But they had managed to avoid a lot of the conflicts that had been in the other churches between Jew and Gentile. But they did have their own problems. Things were developing of some heresies that Paul needed to address. And Paul was writing to them to correct these dangers and to warn them. Really, it's all part of his desire, as stated in chapter 1, verse 28. He says he wants to present every man complete in Christ. That's a worthy goal. That should be our personal goal for ourselves as well as helping others in pursuing the same. His salutation was an expression of his genuine desire for them that they would have the grace and peace of God in their lives. And he sought to accomplish that by addressing the doctrinal issues in chapters 1 and 2 and then give practical outworking of how to live the Christian life in chapters 3 and 4. That is how we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This morning, we're going to continue our study of Colossians. We're going to find that Paul follows his normal routine. He usually opens his letter, and he'll give uh, thanksgiving, and then he'll give a prayer concerning the church he is writing to, and he does the same here, and then he addresses the doctrinal issues. We find that here also in Colossians. In fact, we find really as a hallmark of godliness this whole issue of thankfulness, People are thankful when they're walking in the Spirit of God because they see things differently than the rest of the world. And Paul is very characterized by this. The importance of thankfulness is seen throughout Scripture. All the way back in the Mosaic Law, we see there was a thank offering itself. Leviticus 7 talks about it. And that's what its purpose was, a thank offering. Your sin was already dealt with with the guilt offering and the burnt offering. And here is a thank offering just to God given voluntarily. In the Psalms, 35 different Psalms express specifically thanksgiving, not just praise, but thanksgiving to God. Jesus' life was characterized by thanksgiving. How often, even the simplest things, we'd find him break bread and he'd 
lift up his eyes and give thanks to his Father in heaven for that provision. Paul has it as a common theme. In Paul's various letters, thanksgiving is expressed 44 times. It's an important issue. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. It says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing in you since... Uh, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. There are several things we can note here about thanksgiving from what Paul says. And the first thing is that thanksgiving is directed to God. It may seem simple, but the thanksgiving that Paul has is directed to God. While the actions of others, the events in our own lives may prompt us to be thankful, as it does occur here as well, as Paul is considering what's going on in the Colossians' life, the response to those events is really determined by our understanding of God and His character. You see, Paul understood that ultimately, God is the ultimate source of all blessings that occur in life. For example, in Philippians, the Philippians had sent him a gift. Paul, remember, Philippians is a companion letter. It was sent with, along with the letter to the Colossians and Ephesians and one to Philemon all at the same time. But the Philippians had sent a monetary gift to Paul by Epaphroditus to help him while he's in prison. What was Paul's response to it? Well, we actually find that. It's just back a couple of pages, Philippians chapter 4. In, uh, starting in verse 10, here's his response to this gift they gave. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Then in verses 11 through 13, he explains that he had learned to be content in any circumstance. So he really wasn't looking for the gift. He was content. And then in verses uh, 14 through 16, he commends them. You have done well to share with my affliction. And in fact, he remarks they're the only ones to have done so in this in his uh, early part of his ministry. But then he expresses the real reason for this joy there in verses 17 and 18 of Philippians 4. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God and they could be sure that God would take care of their needs. Verse 19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Another place he had remarked that the Macedonians uh, would often give sacrificially the point that it placed themselves at risk, but they would desire to do it. God would supply their needs. But notice here that Paul's rejoicing is more centered around what the Lord is doing in their lives than what he knows selfishness in Paul's receiving this. There's no selfishness in the thankfulness, which often marks us. We're thankful because we got. Paul is thankful because he sees God at work. And so the first thing we really note here is the thankfulness goes to God. Now, James, the brother Lord, marks the same thing that Paul saw. God is the ultimate source of all blessings that occur in life. Over in James 1.17, 
we find that the brother of the Lord remarks and says this, Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And that's why our attitude of being grateful is directed to the Lord, even while we may commend people. And those who have given like that commendation better, because really our desire is to fulfill Matthew 5.16, letting our light so shine before God that men see our good works and give praise to who? To our Father who is in heaven. That's the best praise that can be given, that what we do prompts them to give thanks to God and praise his name, that we're used by him. Really, it is about God's glory and not our own. True? It's about his glory. Now, there are plenty of people that will take this idea of God's sovereignty and then run with it logically, conclude that if God is sovereign and responsible for all the good stuff, then he is sovereign and must be responsible for all the bad stuff. Now, that's not bad logic. It's just simply not true, though. Scripture is very clear that the bad things that happen in our lives happen for three different reasons or a combination of them. The first one is that it's a consequence of our own sin. When we sin, there are negative consequences. There are bad things that happen because we have violated God's standards. Yet, we find that we can rejoice um, in what God is doing because he changes us. Galatians uh, 6-7 states it succinctly, that do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. But he goes on that if we reap to sow to righteousness, we reap righteousness. The principle works both ways. The second reason we suffer is because of the sins of other people, and we all have suffered at the hands of other people. Jesus even told us that as his followers, we should expect to suffer because people will hate us because they hate him. We should expect there will be those who will lie about us, they will slander us, they will seek to persecute us. Why? For the sake of his name and righteousness. And yet, we should rejoice. Why? That's how the prophets of old were treated. That's the way the godly have always been treated. It is an encouragement to know that I'm walking correctly when the ungodly don't like me. Not only that, but Jesus said, though in this world you will have tribulation, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We have a hope beyond the present. It's John 16, 33. The third reason that we suffer in this life is because we live in a sin-fallen world. Anybody here have a body that works perfectly well, no problems at all, never had any problems, works exactly the way that God designed the body to work in the Garden of Eden? No, I didn't think so. We've all had this genetic problem. We got it from Adam, and things just keep getting worse and worse as time goes on. And then we go to do something, and the second law of thermodynamics takes in place, and it breaks on us. Sometimes while we're using it, and it breaks us, and it hurts. As you saw, David was walking around here on crutches because he got off on a dock and got a sliver way up in his heel. And then it, got in, uh, it was so deep it ended up being infected, even though we spent several hours trying to get the junk out of it. Brave young man as he sat there while we dug around with needles and knives. Would that have happened in the Garden of Eden? No. But it does happen in this life. 
We suffer because we live in a sin-fallen world. Every time you pull a weed out of your garden, whether it's your vegetable garden or your flower garden, every time you're laboring and you start sweating profusely because you're laboring, it's a reminder we live in a sin-cursed world. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Those are the three areas, and they often work in combination with each other, that cause us to suffer in this life. Now, God's goodness is seen, though, in the midst of the suffering. It is seen in His extension of His mercy and grace that it rescues us from the consequences of these three areas. How often have we not suffered the consequence of our own sin? We should have suffered because God was gracious. Or someone was certainly attempting to bring trouble in our lives, and God blocked it, and we didn't suffer from that. Or he has managed to help us overcome a sin-fallen world and the curse upon it, that we can rejoice and receive good things in this life, in a sin-cursed world. That's God's goodness. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the goodness and kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God should bring us to repentance. And the godly man will repent. He will give thanks to God for his mercy, for his grace, even while he may be suffering. And there's a reason for that that goes even deeper, because it says something else about God's sovereignty, and no, I don't think we understand this completely because he's sovereign, we're not, is that even when we are suffering, whether it's our sin, someone else's sin, or a sin-cursed world, God is able to take those bad circumstances, those tough things that we're enduring, and work it together for those who love him and are called important to his purpose for good, our good and his glory. That's what's amazing. Even if I sin, God can still use it to change me and bring good out of it, just as he did with Joseph's brothers. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve many alive. That's why he was sent to Egypt as a slave. That is the power of our God, and that's why we can give thanksgiving to him regardless of our circumstances. The Colossian believers understood this. Remember that Paul is writing this while he is imprisoned in Rome, and he is giving thanks for the Colossians because of what he had seen going on in their lives. And so he rejoiced over those things, And we can as well. We can always rejoice. In Romans 5, it tells us to, actually it's exult, to take great joy in our tribulation, because as you work through the passage, God changes us, matures us through it, and it's always bound and founded and anchored in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, proven that while we're yet sinners, he died for us. That's proven for all time and eternity, isn't it? This is what he has done. Now, uh, Paul also stresses here, as he is mentioning it, he says, he describes God here as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, phrasing is slightly different than what Paul usually uses in the expression, and it's a very deliberate emphasis that he's making about the relationship Jesus has to God, the Father. This begins Paul's correction of the doctrinal attack that has been made in Colossae against Jesus' deity. So he's establishing this is the relationship that Jesus 
and God the Father have. Paul is giving thanks to the very same one revealed by Jesus as his Father. So he begins that as well. Thanksgiving is also expressed in prayers. This is the third point we note in this beginning. It's expressed in prayers for them. The uh, ESV actually has a better translation of this than verse 3 than most of the other English translations. They state it this way, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. A lot of translations make that continuing as like we're continually praying. Well, Paul prayed for a lot of things, but there are other things that happen in life. Whenever he was praying, he would give thanks for the Colossians. Now, that's a remarkable truth if we think about it. Paul is writing a letter of correction. He has to deal with some very serious doctrinal issues, but he begins his letter with giving thanks for their character, for the things that were going on there. Paul did not let the weakness or failures that were going on in Colossae to take away from his thanksgiving for the good things that have already occurred and the good things he expects to have happen in the future. He had a hope for the future for them. And I think that's an important point for us to keep in mind when we deal with people. Do not let someone's struggles or their failure in one area destroy your view of their overall character. Okay? Take the bigger picture, not concentrate on just because a person's struggling in one area or failed in one area. Paul didn't allow that to happen to himself. I think too often we end up shooting our wounded instead of helping them overcome and become strong. Paul is going to give strong correction, but he did so in the hope that in making those corrections, they would continue on in the character they've already demonstrated and change and walk with Christ properly. And that's what we desire to do as well. We will make corrections. We will admonish one another with the hope that the change will continue on in the same characteristics that we demonstrated when we come to, come to Christ and start becoming conformed to the image of his Son. So this is the very reason for his cause of thanksgiving to God for them. They were exhibiting a basic character that was godliness. Now the cause of their thanksgiving was their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first reason he states here. Epaphras had shared his concerns with Paul, but he did not travel to Rome just to complain to Paul. These people in Colossae, I realized I went there and I told them all the things you told me to do, but man, they're all messed up. He wasn't going there to complain. He gave a full picture, and that included a full report about their good characteristics, and that included their faith in Jesus. The particular preposition used here stresses the state of their faith being secure in Christ. The Greek word for faith, pistis, includes the concepts of belief and trust. And so it's far beyond the idea of intellectual assent, which seems to have uh, overtaken American Christianity. We have faith in what we believe in, and therefore we are certain we can trust it. They all go together. There is certainty in believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, for our trust in him is secure since he loses none that belong to him. And that's their position. Their faith in Christ positioned them in Christ. They were secure there. They could trust him. Epaphras also told Paul about the love that existed among the Colossian believers for all the saints. Now, this is not referring to an emotional attraction. It's not referring to fond feelings of affection. This is agape love. And this love for the saints is the second reason for his uh, great thankfulness because this agape love is a sacrificial love that we can't generate out of ourselves. 
It is something that comes from God through us. It is a sacrifice for the best interest of others. It doesn't occur in this manner in Greek literature until the scriptures. This is the love that God has for the world, John 3.16, a sacrificial love. It's a love that um, Jesus had in coming and dying as our substitute for the payment of our sins, Romans 5.8. Actually, men, it's the love you're supposed to have for your wife. Paul uses it three times in Roman, or, uh, Ephesians 5 to love her in this self-sacrificial manner. It's a love Jesus had for his disciples. In turn, he wanted them to love each other with that same kind of love, John 13, 34. A good description of the attitude of this kind of love is over in um, Philippians. Again, it's just back a couple pages from where you are there in Colossians. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the attitude of this kind of love. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It's other-centered. It's not self-centered. It's not selfish. I think we can all recognize that this kind of love is very different from what is typically meant in our society when someone says, I love you, or I love this, or something else. That's not usually what we mean by it. In this society, usually it means, well, I like having you around. I benefit from you. Appreciate it. That's what they mean by love. Or I have these emotional, strong feelings of affection for you. Or if it's a romantic setting, it usually means I lust after you. That kind of love is selfish at its core instead of self-sacrificial as is the love that the Colossian believers were showing to each other, which reflected the love of Christ. So Epaphras informed Paul that the Colossian believers were marked by this true godly love for other believers, and for that reason, Paul gave thanks to God for them. It demonstrated as they were born of God, as 1 John 4, 7 states. It demonstrated they were of Christ, as John 13, 34 states. It's an example we need to follow ourselves. Now, where did this come from? Why was this faith there? How were they able to continue on? It's because they had a hope reserved in heaven. This kind of faith and love doesn't spring up on its own. We don't generate it ourselves. It's outside us. It's outside the world. And here Paul says it's rooted in their hope in heaven. Now, hope we need to explain is different when we find it in the Bible. We usually use the word hope as a synonym for wish. I hope it goes well for you. What does that mean? It means I wish it goes well for you. That's how we often use the word. But that's not what the word hope means in biblical literature. Anywhere we find it. Elpis has the uh, definition of an expectation with confident assurance. There's a confidence here, an assurance here, of something that's going to happen in the future. Believers have been given a sure promise by the Lord Jesus Christ that not only are we forgiven of our sins and made righteous before God, but also that he's going to take us to heaven to be with him for eternity. Those are sure promises. He told his disciples in John 14, 1 through 3, that he was going to depart, go to heaven, prepare a place for them, and would return to get them, to take them back there. In um, Philippians 3, 20, 
Paul says our citizenship is placed where? In heaven. In heaven. That's one reason a lot of governments don't like Christians. They recognize their ultimate allegiance is to a citizenship that isn't here on earth. And man-made governments want allegiance only to them. But our allegiance is to God. Then to country. Always in that order. Our expectation, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that if we are alive and remain when the Lord returns, we will be caught up together with him, meet him in the air, and ever be with him. And if we die first, physically, in this life, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says we're absent from the body and then present with the Lord. That's a sure promise. No matter what circumstances, we have this promise. We will be with him. Now, I realize that several Christian sects doubt this assurance of salvation in heaven, but in doing so, they're being contrary to what the Scriptures themselves say, and probably more seriously, they're making Jesus and the apostles to be, out, to be people who are either very misled or liars, because this is what they kept saying. These were their, their promises. What's actually behind this, the reason for these sects and cults not having an assurance of salvation, is that as they present their view of salvation, they perverted it. And it becomes dependent upon their good works rather than faith in Christ. It's dependent upon them themselves rather than what God has done in Jesus. And if it's dependent upon you, you have every reason to be unsettled because we're constantly changing. We're fickle. And if you don't believe that, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. How come you're not consistent? Okay? Or your kids will tell you. They'll bank on you doing one thing, and you fool them, and you do something else. But our salvation is based on the promises of God. Over in John 5, 24, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come to judgment, but it has passed out of death and into life. That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? The Apostle John wrote, 1 John 5, 12-13, He who has the Son has a life. He who does not have the Son does not have a life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. It's not a guess. It's not a wish. There's a confident assurance. He made the promise, not me. He made it. My confidence is in Him to carry it out. That's why there's a confident assurance. In fact, to say that you can't have that makes him a liar, doesn't it? Makes the apostles a liar. He won't hold to his promises. He says he will. The Colossian believers were confident of Jesus' promises, that they were justified by faith in him, and so they would go to heaven and be with him throughout eternity because of what he had done for them on Calvary. Now, the source of that faith, of course, is the gospel. That's the source of our faith and our hope. Now, gospel simply means good news. But what good news? The good news that we can be saved from our sins by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's bad news. Wherever you find good news, it seems like there's bad news. That's the good news, but the bad news is that if we refuse to believe, then remain condemning your sins. You remain where you were before. Because even the best efforts of even the best man is still like a filthy rag before God, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us. 
and therefore far short of the standard of perfect holiness required by God. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us specifically, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. We have to be righteous before him. And so the gospel then is what is the good news of how to be righteous before God, how to have that holiness. And it encompasses both faith and fact. Faith in the wrong object is going to leave you disappointed. Facts without the action of belief will leave you stranded. Let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, you take a ship. I don't know, how many remember Gilligan's Island? Oh, those are all the older people. You have, you, the reruns, it's silly, I know. Out for a three-hour tour, they're landed on this island. They're stuck there, right? Okay, so imagine... You're part of the group, you are stuck on this island. And in your wanderings around, exploring, you find a boat that has been washed up on the shore. All right? That's great. But two things are going to be needed, faith and fact. Now, if you have a lot of faith in this boat, and you say, great, I can get off the island, and you push it out, and out you go, you get past the breakers, and find that, in fact, it is not seaworthy, what happens to you? You sink and drown. That's not very good, is it? Now, on the other hand, you look at this boat, you study this boat, you call a professor over, he studies the boat as well, and you all determine that, yes, this boat is seaworthy, but you refuse to trust it to get in it and go out and off the island. Where are you going to stay? On the island. You're stuck there. You're stranded. See, both things are, are part of it. Faith has to be in the right object, and faith has to have consequences. It always does. Faith is what you believe. And you always act upon what you believe. Sometimes we don't like that because it reveals strange beliefs, but that's the way it is. We act upon what we believe. Now, the facts of the gospel are simple enough, aren't they? God created a perfect world. And in that world, he placed Adam and Eve. And Adam, by his own choice, disobeyed God, and he plunged mankind into sin. And every human that has ever lived since then has by their own actions proven their sinful nature by disobeying God. There's no exceptions except the Lord Jesus himself. All the rest of us, we've proven we are definitely Adam's children. We're just like him. We want it our way, and off we go, our way, not God's way. And so we violate his commandments. Now, God is just and holy. And his wrath is against those who are in sin. And so some means had to be provided to allow us to escape that and yet still preserve his holiness and righteousness. And that means was the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God in human flesh, the one born of a virgin, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who by his own decision, by his own choice, died in our place on the cross of Calvary as the substitute payment for our sin. But the one also who demonstrated that he has the power to forgive sins, and he has the power to keep all his promises when he rose again on the third day and then ascended to heaven and has made the promise he'll come back someday for all of his followers. See, those are sure promises. That's the good news. Because the price has been paid in Christ, I don't have to pay it. I couldn't pay it anyways. He's paid the price. And his promise is very simple. Place your faith in me and what I have done instead of yourself 
and I will reckon to that to you as righteousness, the same way I did to Abraham and to the saints throughout the ages. That's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? It's what God has done, not us. We didn't earn it. He did all the work and offers it to us. All we do is receive it by belief. We are saved by God's grace, Ephesians 2.8. He extends to us what we do not deserve, a great blessing, and we are justified by faith, Romans 3.28. That's the word of truth which was revealed by God to man and which was declared to the Colossian believers, and they believed it. And they did all that prior to the coming of these heretical teachers that were now afflicting them. Now, in verse 6, Paul points out that the gospel had an effect upon them. In fact, it had the same effect upon them as it has everywhere it goes. The gospel is proclaimed, it bears fruit in those who respond and believe. That which was dead in trespasses and sin becomes alive again in Christ, as Ephesians 2, 1 and 5 tell us. Now, what is this fruit? Well, new believers are the fruit of the gospel. You proclaim the truth, people believe it, they're the fruit. Their lives change, and they will keep changing as God molds them into the image of His Son. So that those who would claim some sort of a hidden or special knowledge, they're false, because the gospel was being openly proclaimed. Paul uses the hyperbole here in all the world to emphasize this point, that what was happening or had happened among them had happened other places and was happening other places. There was nothing special going on there It was going on all over the place. They were a small part of something much larger. So don't pay attention to these people who say they have some special hidden knowledge just for them. The gospel is openly proclaimed. Not only that, Paul states here the gospel continues to increase wherever it goes. Why? Let's face it. If there's something we really like, something that we're joyful about, we tell other people about it. We want to tell people. So, when the gospel comes, it bears fruit. We come to believe who Jesus is. We have our sins forgiven. We have a joy with God, a peace with Him we didn't have before. We want to tell other people. We'd like them to have the same thing. We'd like you to be right with God and have this peace and have a confidence for the future that heaven belongs to you. And so, it spreads. It increases. It spreads around the world. That's how it got to Colossae. And that's, it was going from Colossae other places. It was continued to increase. At the end of verse 6, Paul points out that they themselves were examples of the gospel bearing this fruit and increasing. It had happened among them when they understood the grace of God. It happened in other places. This good news that had brought them hope in heaven came as a message of God's grace to man through Jesus. And the gospel they had received then was contradictory to this self-righteousness that was now being proclaimed in their church. Uh, The ideas of asceticism, that you can somehow now become righteous before God if you'll do these things and not do those things. You follow our list of standards, and now God will accept you. God already accepted them. God already paid the price. It's against those things. Some of the things that they were going to be dealing with, chapter 221, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, a, a legalistic decree. They also followed uh, dietary restrictions and observations of particular days, 2.16. Their own experience of the effects of the gospel were a witness against these false teachers and the ideas that were troubling the church, and that's why he's mentioning it here in his, his thanksgiving. 
your own experiences against these heresies I'm going to have to expose and warn you about. And frankly, the same can be said for any church, can't it? The experience we have had with the power of the gospel in our own life to save us from our sins precludes some additional message beyond it that would then make us spiritual. We've already received everything we need. The gospel itself is sufficient. Only five or six years later, the Apostle Peter is going to be writing to those in the same area, the same province of Asia and the surrounding provinces. It'll be a letter that goes throughout it. So they're going to get a message from Peter that encompasses the same issue. We studied 2 Peter last year. We reminded the great truth that God has already granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, 2 Peter 1.3. We already have it. It's through the gospel that God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises that in order by them that we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, 2 Peter 1.4. It's sufficient. And while there is a part we play in applying all diligence and continuing to grow in godliness and its virtues, as 2 Peter 1.5-7 tells us, that is not going to be through either asceticism or mysticism. It's not going to be from some legalistic standard. It's going to be following His Word and His Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 explains that we will grow by applying all diligence to supplying to, in succession to our faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And each of those is founded upon the previous and in turn also builds up the previous one. And so maturity just keeps rising. The word of truth from God, as given through his apostles, is sufficient. You don't need something from somebody who's got special special knowledge. It's right there. You've got it. Read it. Believe it. Follow it. It's sufficient. In verse 7, Paul introduced him. I should say that Paul introduced himself in his greeting as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This was his means of asserting his position so that he would show that he had authority to deal with the issues he was writing about in, later in the letter. But here in verse 7, we find that Paul reminds them he's not the one that brought them the gospel. It was Epaphras. Now, why is that important? Because Epaphras was one of their own. He had come and delivered the word of truth to them. And they knew him and his character. Paul may have been an apostle, but he was unknown to them. Many of them had never seen his face, according to chapter 2, verse 1. And they'd be much more persuaded by someone they knew, and they knew his character, than someone that was a stranger to them. It's for that reason Paul reminds them. They learned the gospel from Epaphras, not a stranger in their midst. And he also stresses Epaphras' character here, his qualities and his position as, again, demonstrating the nature of the gospel they'd received from him. They had not been told a story by some charlatan, some huckster, someone who was out to exploit them for their own gain. They had received the message that was to their own benefit from a man who was bound to be faithful to the message of his master. They had received the truth from a man who was there for their benefit to give and not to gain. They could either accept or reject it, but they should not be uh, thinking now that the good news has to be augmented by something else. 
his position and character even proves more so the point. Paul describes Epaphras as a, actually, the should be fellow, uh, our beloved fellow slave. The um, adjective beloved expresses the good character of one that had endeared himself to Paul. Now, we believe that Epaphras probably received the gospel when Paul was in Ephesus. He taught there for two years, and there was many that had come to Ephesus, and from there, the gospel went out throughout uh, Asia Minor. And if that's true, then his relationship with Paul goes back many, many years, and not just this time that they were together in Rome. So Paul knew him very well and valued him highly. But what he describes him here is a sundulas. He is a fellow slave. The prefix soon designates association with, and usually we translate it as with, something that's an association with something. And it's joined with the word doulos, which is the word for slave. Now, I realize that most English translations uh, all translate that as servant. And the reason simply goes back into even the 1600s. Englishmen did not like the idea of being a slave to anything. And so they wouldn't use the word. They translated as servant. But there's a different word for servant here in the same verse. This is the word for slave, because that's exactly the relationship we do have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that first word there, Lord Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a price. That's why he's our master. Bought, redeemed with the precious blood that he shed on the cross, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And so he is our Lord and master, Romans 10.9, Colossians 4.1, Jude 4, and you go on and on. He is master. One of Paul's most frequent descriptions himself is as a slave of Christ, Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1, and other passages. And so he says, Epaphras, beloved to me, a beloved fellow slave, same position as I'm in. And that means he's going to be faithful to what his master tells him. He also describes Epaphras here as a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. The adjective faithful describes another of Epaphras' characteristics. He's trustworthy. That's his character. He's going to carry out the responsibilities that are entrusted to him. He is also called here a diakonos. We transliterate that into our word deacon. means servant. And that's why I said doulos and diakonos, two different words. Doulos is slave, diakonos is servant. We gain an illustration of this in Acts 6, as the apostles charged seven men to take care of the widows, make sure they were provided for. It was a service. That's why the word is also translated many places as minister. And Paul states here, Epaphras was a servant or minister of Christ. That is, he is going to carry out the responsibilities entrusted to him by Christ. Paul also adds that he did this on our behalf. A few manuscripts will translate as your behalf, but both are true of Epaphras. He was at that time in Rome ministering to Paul while he was in prison. He had been faithful previously to bringing the gospel to those in Colossae. Now, these characteristics of being beloved, of him being a beloved bond slave, of him being a faithful servant of Christ, those are characteristics that should mark us as well, shouldn't they? Shouldn't we be people who are beloved to one another, who are faithful to our Lord? Shouldn't we see ourselves as slaves of our master 
not just willy-nilly going out and doing anything we want, regardless of what our master says he wants us to do. Our allegiance is to him. That's what a slave has, an allegiance to a master, but also a servant, giving willingly, not grudgingly. Now, if those characteristics do not mark you already, you know what? They can. All you need to do is be diligent, like 1 Peter or 2 Peter 1 talks about, in adding to those characteristics you already have and having them grow. And the more you grow in Christ and walk with him, the more you will become like Epaphras or Paul, and the more you'll be used by God in the same manner. Paul closes this paragraph of thanksgiving by recognizing their love in the Spirit. Epaphras had told them about that. Yeah, there's serious concerns about what's going on in Colossae, but the evidence of their early response, early proper response to the gospel was great. As in verse 4, this is agape love. This is the love that extends itself in self-sacrifice in the best interest of others. And Epaphras' report made it clear to Paul that this love was obviously directed by the Spirit of God. It wasn't just people who liked being together. It was something that God was doing. And so he remarks on it. As I pointed out earlier, that kind of love is a demonstration that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will know you are my disciples if you have love, this kind of love for one another. True thanksgiving is directed toward God because ultimately it is understood that every blessing we ever have, ever will have, comes from his gracious hand. Paul gave thanks to God when he considered and prayed for the Colossian believers because he knew something about what they had exhibited, their faith in God, their hope in heaven. They had responded well to the message that Epaphras had given to them. They bore the fruit of it, genuine faith exhibited in the love for all the saints prompted by the Holy Spirit. And that early response to the gospel would be the source of both correction and defense against the heretical teachings Paul will deal with later in the letter. That's the example we need to follow, isn't it? This example of thanksgiving ourselves, understanding that, yes, our God is the source of our blessings, and we should thank him for it, the little things as well as the great things. We should also follow the example of the Colossian believers whose response to the gospel bore that fruit in self-sacrificial love. It should mark our lives. We should be like Epaphras, and strive to be a bond slave, a faithful servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel means that all these things are not just possible, but they are assured as we walk in a manner worthy with our Lord. Because he changes us as we do that. So wherever you are now, be grateful. You're not where you used to be, and God's going to keep changing you. Because he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. For that, we can always give thanks to God, can't we? Father, we again...